Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 260. Today is Sunday, the 10th of December 2017, and this interview is with Nick Oliver, who's an entrepreneur looking at the cross-section of artificial intelligence, personal data, and business models. He's the founder and CEO of People.io, a startup whose purpose is giving people ownership of their data. People.io is described as the firewall for people. And in this conversation with Nick, we discuss his remarkable background, the inspiration behind and the development of People.io. It's an innovative idea and a fascinating story. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to the Minter Dialogue today. Someone I met in Moscow, Russia, while I was doing a keynote uh, at the ADV Global Summit. And uh, this is a chap who my best friend said really was the balls. So Nick Oliver, um, great to have you on the show. You are the founder of a really interesting initiative called People.io. So I, we're going to get into that, but let's find out from you who you are in your own words and what's your mindset these days. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so founder of People.io, and I guess my mindset is it's one of creation. I like to solve things, big problems, big challenges, but but just by doing. And <laughs> it catches me out sometimes, but just doing stuff. That's a great mindset. Um, so, Nick, uh, we were just talking a little bit beforehand, and I would love for you to, to tell us how you got to where you got to. I mean, not the, you know, the whole story, but your journey has been one marvelous journey, and, and it speaks volumes to doing things. Yeah, so I started when I was 12 selling domains, and, and from there kind of progressed through different things after getting kicked out of school for not really fitting the mold, and, and most recently working in WPP on the Ford business for, for an incredible, incredible team of people, but always kind of with the end result of, of having achieved something through doing. Um, I have no real education to speak of, so I find it quite interesting that I got to where I got to without that. Um, and I think any time I'm working with new people in the industry and they're, they're like, oh, but I've got this degree, I've got this, I've got that. I'm like, but what have you done? What have you made? What have you, what have you delivered? And I think that to me is, is something that I just find fascinating. So uh, I, I'm not exactly sure how old you are, but you are young. And I'm sure that uh, along the way, you've, you've somehow always had to deal with the question, so what do you have as a background and what's your ac- academics? And, and how do you deal with that? And, and do you kind of view it the wrong way around? I mean, the way around as in, you know, well, actually, your education maybe isn't worthless, is worthless? Yeah, it's really interesting because recently we've been, been hiring a few different people and we're very fortunate to have some incredibly smart people in the team. And, and a number of them have very impressive CVs with many letters behind their name. And, and just today, actually, I was interviewing someone with a PhD in computer science and, and I interviewed someone a few weeks ago with a PhD in artificial intelligence from 1995. And, and when I talked to them, I, like, I prefaced the interview with, I have no right to be interviewing you because you are clearly an incredibly smart person. And I think um, for me, I'm just, I guess, a a different type of smart if I am smart at all, Mm -hmm. um, which is finding problems or finding solutions to problems. And I think uh, different, different areas of the industry or knowledge require different approaches to learning. 
Um, for me, I didn't feel education was the way that got me where I wanted to be, but for others, perhaps it does. Um, and suffice to say, if, if you've got a doctor operating on you, then you probably want someone that's actually gone through a rigorous formal education mm -hmm. in order to, to be qualified as that. Um, but I'm, I'm very much of the view, my mum's a teacher actually, so I'm very much of the view education plays its role. And I think the, 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 the fascination for me actually is I would love to have a company one day that is only uh, employing graduates people straight out of university mm. and the reason for that is because I think that a lot of the time big companies kind of waste the education a person has by pushing them into a mold um, a mold of the company instead of benefiting from that kind of white space that mm. that person's had for the last four or five years of their life as they've been learning yeah, it's like they put them into a they need to put them into a track and make them like that. I should put you in touch with a friend of mine in California whose, whose role is to help graduates get into jobs. And maybe you should have a little fun chat. Yeah. But I, before we get into this, I do want to just jump back to this one thing, which is you didn't graduate from high school and yet you went to university. So you found a solution to a big problem, which is <laughs> quite remarkable. And you found it in Australia. And then the thing you were telling me about was how you got back into the university life and you did this experiment or you, you, you wrote a, a project about the harmonics and, and miking wind instruments. So, I, you know, since I'm a musical, I'm a mellow man, uh, tell us exactly what went on. Yeah, so the, the, the thesis that I was meant to do at university was really about understanding um, how electrocardioid mics, very much like this one actually, could be used on string instruments in, in a live environment. And the reason for that is because I love making stuff and and if you think about the biggest form of production in music it's classical orchestras but but different sorts of instruments um i used to play a, a brass instrument when i was younger and and then the drums and so I was, like my family was quite musical i was reasonably musical um and i like in doing that uh I, I had this great opportunity to work in the sydney opera house on exactly that scenario where one of australia's leading engineers doug brady was um, miking up the Sydney Symphony Orchestra for the very first time uh, with one of Australia's most famous musicians, John Farnham. And, and I found myself in the middle of arguments between the front of house engineer and the studio engineer and Doug in the middle, all talking about how those instruments should be miked up. Um, and to me, to, to have got into that opportunity was fascinating. But interestingly, the, the reason that I managed to, to get that opportunity is because... Um, everyone had to do work experience in their second year. Uh, and so in my head, I thought, well, why would I wait until the same time when everyone in Australia starts applying for work experience? Because then there's not going to be much opportunity. Mm. Why not apply six months early? Mm. So I applied six months early and got 10 out of 12 letters that I sent. I had 10 responses offering me roles. Um, and so the reason I actually got an opportunity is because I saw the problem, which was everyone's going to apply at the same time and just preempted it and, and went out and, and got it. And like, I, I still to this day love music and, and the production of music, but I just didn't feel like I could lock myself in a room and finish a project or create something myself. I felt there was too much reliance on, on equipment or a studio or, or other people or, or even musicians. Um, and I like, sometimes I just feel like I, I, I want to go and 
get it done. I don't see why it can't be done. Well, it's so extreme, Nick, in, in listening to you about your experience at, this, at the uh, Sydney Opera House and and also your experience at WPP, uh, is that you, you obviously have a knack of wanting to find the solution and, and looking at why these individuals, in this case there is the front office and the back and the musicians, uh, the sound, sound technicians, were, were at loggerheads. And the same thing happens in corporations all around the world. There's, there's always these people and the egos get in, involved. So people is at the heart of all this and, and the egos that are in there. So you, you've morphed out of WPP and you founded people.io. So I have to ask you before, as you got into the idea of people.io, because I think that's where this is going to go, do you subscribe to the idea that the current model of the internet is dead, yay or nay, and if, and if yes, how to fix it? I don't think the current model of the internet is dead. I think the current model of paying for or monetizing the internet is dead. Mm. Um, the concept and, and the foundation and the technology associated to the internet is, is still very much the thing that enables most of commerce in today's world. And in fact, I saw just now you had, you had a card with Jaron Lenier on it, um, who I had the, the incredible fortune of meeting a number of years ago in one of the projects I was working on in WPP. And since meeting him, I was just fascinated with the way he spoke about the internet. And, and one of the most basic statements he made, which was when networks were created, they were created to have a file or, or a thing in one place and to access it remotely across a network without the need for replication. And at the moment, that's not how the internet is working. So we're just replicating things and storing it multiple times in multiple places. And when you think about it, that's kind of what data is doing sitting in lots of places instead of just in one place but i'm sure we'll come back to that but i think if you look at the internet and, and the way people talk about publishers and and that publishers need to advertise in order to pay for content and it's advertising that pays for the internet um sure i i, I think it would be fair and safe to acknowledge that advertising is an important element of the internet but when you have companies and publishers like the guardian that go out and and investigate the industry and spend money on buying media from themselves basically so they went out uh, about nine months ago now and bought some of their own media but through the advertising industry they saw 30p on the pound so they themselves spent a pound on advertising on their own website through the industry and at the end of the value chain they got 30p back now you've got to ask the question what is the other 70p doing well we know where it's going but what value is that chain adding and that's everything from agencies to dsps dmps ssps all the acronyms um and every single one of them would love to make the argument we're making advertising more relevant or we're making it more targeted or more useful or better but if you talk to a consumer and you say uh do you notice a perceivable difference or improvement in the quality of something they saw five years ago versus something they see today I'd say the rise in ad blocking would suggest not. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'd suggest it was probably more intrusive, more disruptive and less relevant than ever. Um, and so inherently, The Guardian and other publishers alike have the problem where they now need to show four times as much advertising in order rec to recoup the same value. So is the internet broken? No. Is the way that companies are trying to monetize it broken? 
Yes. So you would you subscribe to Jean Lanier's approach or let's say cynicism with regard to Google and Facebook in particular that their business model is not going to work? Yeah, and in fact, there was um, there was a statement, and and I won't try to to quote it verbatim because I know I'll get it wrong. But there is a is an observation Jaron Lenier made in response to some of the the conversations of a few years ago, where he pointed out Facebook is stealing your data. And if you look at uh, a couple of years ago when the ad blocking proliferation was at least coming onto the radar of advertisers. Um, I think it was the culture secretary of the UK at the time said um, ad blocking is tantamount to piracy. You're stealing content. You're stealing people's intellectual property by not allowing those adverts to run. Um, and I always put that back to back with Jan Lenier's observation that Facebook is stealing your data because I think, um, yeah, absolutely. Content needs to be paid for somehow. Um, but paid for in a way where you lose control or something is taken from you as a result, I think is is far scarier. Um, so I think his his book on who owns the future and, and what he talks about in a number of the, the big presentations, conversations and keynotes he's done, the guy's mind-blowing, like absolutely mind-blowing. And, and the presentation he gave uh, a number of years ago when, when I had that opportunity to meet him, he was talking about some of the work he was doing at Microsoft um, and just talking about even consumer products like Connect, but in a way that was just off the chart incredible. And I think it needs people like that to kind of set the tone. I mean, he was involved in Minority Report and, and conceptualizing that dystopian future, but it also needs people kind of in, in the nearer term to, to transpose that into a reality. It, I went to hear him speak at Intelligence Squared the other night, and and he basically said, I, I, I work for Microsoft, but this is not as Microsoft employee, but as Jean Lanier personally, unsubscribe, get out of all the social media. Mm-hmm. What's your opinion? Yeah, it. I guess my opinion is one of more commercial pragmatism. Um, and, and saying that again... It, acknowledging that I also agree and believe in his view um, it's more just how does that then get enabled because to talk to the mainstream consumer and say get off social media is more of a fundamentalist or a binary approach Um, and I don't believe that consumers um, and people en masse I shouldn't even call them consumers because because that's a a specific way of seeing them I guess Um, but people en masse um I think the reason that won't work is because they don't perceive the value in doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were talking briefly earlier about um, kind of taking that construct of of net present value. Um, And in a financial world, that's a a perception of value of receiving £10 now versus £20 in a year. People would normally perceive £10 now to be more valuable, even though monetarily £20 in a year would be worth more. Um, and I think the same is true with, with control of data. And, and so if you say to someone now, delete your Facebook, delete your Amazon, delete your Uber, etc. What is the immediate tangible benefit to that person for doing that? Um, and, and until that is solved, I don't think people will do it. Um, yeah, for now, I'm thinking, gosh, I'm not going to be able to get in touch with my friend in Australia tomorrow. Right, exactly, and it was the same. The same was true with with Uber when it was announced that they were um, location tracking people after having got out of an Uber. Um, 
obviously from a technical point of view you could see why they would do that it, it enables them to do certain things but from a user and a privacy point of view a little scary now did people delete uber because of that no I mean, I'm sure some people did, but but on mass, no, because they were getting five pound cheaper taxi rides across London. Now, are people then going to delete Facebook? Probably not. Or in fact, even if they did delete Facebook, and this is the important point, even if they did delete Facebook, does it stop Facebook tracking them? No, because Instagram's doing it, because WhatsApp's doing it, because Facebook Messenger's doing it, because Atlas the retargeting platform that sits behind every like button that's exposed on the internet, which is on the most websites you can imagine, all that's tracking you. So if if Nick Oliver wanted to get rid of or, you know, dis, desubscribe from all these things, because you are someone who would be in the know, is it possible? How long would it take you to do? I mean, let's say you, presumably you're on Instagram, WhatsApp and everything, and, and you and you delete, do you think you would have some level of confidence that you can actually get yourself extracted at this point? I don't think so, no. Um, and the reason that I don't think it's possible is because the the perception of controlling data is not so much a person owning the, the physical data itself. It's more a person's ability to control the use or the influence of that data. Um, and in a world of intelligent systems and AI... Even once data is deleted, the knowledge is retained. And I think therein lies the problem. Because even with this new regulation that's coming out, the General Data Protection Regulation, that that gives a person a a right to erasure, uh, not the band, but um, an ability to to request personal data held by a company about them should or could be deleted. Um, Even if your data is deleted, the intelligence isn't. And I think from a, again, thinking about this from a consumer or a person's point of view, not a legal or a technical point of view, if you had a thousand banner ads with the word Minter on them and 999 of them were sent to people not called Minter, but you saw one, would you perceive that banner to have been targeted at you? Yes or no? Chances are probably yes. Now, just because it was in an audience of a thousand people that had similar traits and personality types and things that allowed that targeting to happen, that doesn't stop it feeling personal. And I think the the risk is that we're we're assuming at the moment that by aggregating data into these pseudo-anonymized or seemingly anonymized sets, it's an acceptable form of anonymization or deletion. And so I think, broadly speaking, coming back to your question... No, I don't think if you delete your Facebook, it makes a massive difference because, like I've said, even in the even with the platforms where uh, they're not meant to be tracking you, they still are. And so, how do you, how do you really stop that? All right. So all of this uh, leads us to People.io. So tell us uh, what is People.io and and how did you come up with the idea? The idea of People.io in 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 our mission is to give people ownership of their data. Um, and, and the longer term view is this rather grandiose statement, admittedly, of creating a firewall for people. Now, when I used to refer to a firewall for people, uh, I would obviously get the look of, well, that's a very fancy kind of buzzwordy term and it sounds very cool. But um, what does it actually mean? And I think when you look at what Elon Musk has been doing recently with plugging AI into the limbic system I mean you could see okay well already we're connecting technology to the brain the human brain so there's a need for some level of protection but I guess even here and now where we're seeing data is being used 
in a weaponized form to create an effect on free society through the manipulation of, of the electorate, psychological manipulation. Not to mention the cyber hacking and the other state-induced um, uses of the internet. Absolutely. All of those uses that, that take data and apply it to a person and getting a person to act in a different way, that's pretty scary. Now, put that down to advertising. That is the modus operandi of advertising. Right, yeah. Convince someone to buy something. Mm-hmm. Now, historically, um, that was inherently restricted or limited in its capability through the nature of the, the communication. Uh, a newspaper advert only has a limited ability to enforce or impact a, the way a person thinks. Now, of course, if you took over every billboard and every newspaper and every channel that existed 50 years ago, you would certainly have an impact. But who had the financial means to do that? Mm-hmm. Digital, on the other hand, because it can be so targeted, has a lot more capability for misuse. So going back to, to who and what people I owe is so giving people ownership of their data. Now, the way that we do that is by focusing on on the area that I mentioned just now. How do you create a perception of value in the mind of a consumer or a person that is immediate? Not a long-term perception of value, but right here, right now. And so the company is based on three pillars, privacy, control, and reward, with a view that you can't have privacy until you first have control, and people won't take control unless they're rewarded. So we start with reward. How do you reward a person for taking control of their data? So we've built an app, um, and the idea of the app is is focused in and around advertising, where if you look at the advertising industry in the UK, around £16 billion is spent every year. Uh, And interestingly, when you split that over the UK population, it works out to about £250 per person. So the view that I had was, okay, we need to reward a person for taking control of their data. Where is the money going to come from to create that reward? Because reward isn't just about being monetary or monetary. It can also be experiential, etc., etc. But in order to create those other types of rewards, you first need data. So it's chicken and egg. How do you start? Well, let's assume 18 to 25-year-olds, the way you get them to do something is you say, I'll pay you this in return for doing that. So that's where we started. So we've got £250 that the advertising industry spent, and we've got a consumer. So if we can make advertising one of the most inefficient industries in the world a tiny bit more efficient by getting them to stop using third-party data and instead to use first-party, by getting rid of high-latency insights and using low-latency insights, and foregoing the need to use aggregate anonymized audiences and instead use identifiable data because it's not being leaked or shared, we could now use that £250 to pay people to care about their data whilst also improving advertising. Win-win situation, you'd feel. Just one clarification, high latency and low latency. Give me an understanding of what that means. Yeah, so really quick analogy. Imagine, um, imagine you asked 50 of my friends to describe me. That's kind of like buying third-party data. Now, you would get a pretty good description, reasonably accurate, few rounded edges. Problem is, if I had a haircut this morning and only five of my friends had seen me since I had a haircut, does that now mean only 10% of my hair has been cut or there's a 10% probability that my hair has been cut? Neither is true. But because only five people have seen it, that's how you would determine a probabilistic score. So then you wait two weeks until 30 of my friends have seen me. 
So now has 60% of my hair now been cut or is it 60% probability that it's been cut? Now, because that 60% may be a large enough probability to, to take an action, you might now start hitting me with ads about like hair care products. Problem is, it's two weeks after the action occurred, but because you're using third-party modeled anonymized data, there's, an, there's a latency in the ability to model it. Whereas first-party identifiable data created and provided by the individual themselves, you would get that directly after. It's kind of like putting a mirror up in front of me every second of my life and saying, okay, what's changed? What are you doing? What's changed? All right, so people.io is this application, which for now, as I understand, it's available on, on uh, UK iTunes and Germany, maybe. I think mm -hmm. I saw German. Um, so it allows me to, it gives me rewards uh, and allows to open up my data uh, and control my data. And then that, or then I knowingly am being targeted. And I, I suppose as opposed to in Facebook, uh, the, the, the challenge where you are going in there, and, and actually to begin with, really unknowingly, we were doing this for free. We're not paying for anything, uh, and yet we are the media. Therefore, uh, we are, as Lanya would say, being used or is being mm. stolen. So people.io is a way for people to knowingly use their data. Is that a fair description? Exactly. So once a user is registered for the app, one of the important things we, we ask them for is their consent. But the consent is, is innocuous in many ways because we point out to them, uh, we never sell their data, even in a tokenized form. Um, the user owns the data that's created within the app. Um, and if they delete their account, we delete all of the data. So that's, a, that's the first most important part of the user's journey. Then we ask them to enable their location uh, and enable notifications. And that will start to add data to their profile. But it's the profile they own and control, remember. We ask them some questions. And every time they answer those questions, it enhances their profile with declared data. Um, and so it just is it's sort of like when you like on Facebook. These are That's kind of data points that it's doing in a more explicit manner. Whereas Facebook looks at it from a behavioral way. You're explicitly saying, do you like blue? Or do you like BMW? And, and as opposed to, I like a, a photograph of a friend that has a BMW in it. Correct. So we're allowing a person to declare what they do and don't like. But we're combining that with an observation as well. But it's less a behavioral observation and more an actual observation. So, for example, if they've connected their Gmail account, we can ask those same questions to their Gmail account. So, for example, uh, did Minter receive an email from uber.com with the word receipt in the subject line anytime in the last six months? And every occurrence where that's true, we would store the observation, not the email, just the observation along a time series. So now we can see, okay, well, you had an Uber at this time, this time, this time. And the reason that that then becomes powerful from an advertiser's point of view is because you have got that accuracy in the recency. So a silly example, imagine you're a florist in Shoreditch, you create a campaign in the platform, you allocate your data budget and an advertising budget. And with the data budget, you could simply ask a question to all the men in Shoreditch saying, do you have a girlfriend? If they say yes, they get another question. Did you buy them anything for Valentine's Day? And when they say no, we now know in real time that's a man in Shoreditch with a girlfriend that hasn't bought them anything for Valentine's Day. So 20 minutes before they leave the office to go home from work, they get a notification saying, hey, Florist has got a message for you. And if they view that content, they also get paid. So for the user, they've now been paid to create data, to engage with an advert. For the florist, 
They've now got engagement from the right person at the right time, but the quid pro quo between the two is the florist never gets that person's data. But if you think back to the whole premise of running a company, does a company really want data or do they want to sell more products? They want to sell products. J. Walter Thompson, when he started newspapers and advertising in the newspaper 100 odd years ago, wasn't sat there thinking, hmm, I wonder how I could collect the fingerprint of this browser or the, the house that this person... He was like, how can I help Ford sell more cars? So I think we're trying to emphasize the fact that advertising can actually be infinitely better and Peter Thiel's 10x improvement concept. How can you make advertising 10x better? Well, at the moment, you either have to go to Facebook and Google and give them all of your data, or you give it back to a person. All right. So the incentive for uh, an advertiser to come to you, I can see how you're, you're promoting the idea of more targeted, more relevant, more transparent. So if you're into that, that sounds cool. As a user, I'm getting the idea that really it's about giving my data, but being paid for it up front. So if I'm interested in being paid for giving my data, if I, I know I want to be the media, or at least you know be participating in the advertising in a more voluntary manner, that's what it is. How do you, A, get people on board? And how many people do you have on board? And two, how do you establish trust? Because why you? Why Nick Oliver? Absolutely. Um, so we've got about 130,000 users at the moment. Uh, we only launched the app in February. And we actually had to turn off acquisition in August because it was working too well. Um, a great problem for a startup to have, but nonetheless, problems that need solving. And the reason it was too successful is because we retained and engaged far more users than, than we'd originally been led to believe would be possible. So our monthly active user base was over 55% of our users. And monthly active for us isn't someone that simply has the app. It's someone that is actively answering questions. And so just quickly, that, so you're 150,000 users. What's the profile? Give us a little bit of a demography. I mean, I, I'm, I'm guessing that they've got to be younger uh, individuals, you know, Gen Z, Gen Y. Absolutely, yeah. We, we focused on 18 to 25-year-olds. And the reason we focused on them, one of, our, one of our investors is the founder of ASOS, the big online fashion retailer. And something he reminded me of is if you change the way an 18 to 25-year-old does something, you can change the world. Because not only will they, of course, become older, but they're incredibly influential. And so in, in this area of personal data, proposition is the thing that enables something to happen. Now, broadly speaking, I'll, I'll apply the, the proposition to demographics, even though it's more psychographic. Uh, 18 to 25-year-olds, the way you get them to do something is you say, I'll pay you this in return for doing that. It's a very simple, clear proposition. 25 to 35 similar but slightly different you you have to say more along the lines of i'll pay your spotify membership if you do this because it reduces their outgoing expenses and their disposable income has a greater perception of value to them 35 to 45 is more about how data can be used to enhance their experience to reduce disruption to improve the quality of something 45 plus is a bit of a wild west largely dependent on the socioeconomics um, and depending on the, the life situation of the individual uh, so we started with 18 to 25 um, and what that also means from a brand and advertiser point of view is whilst yes 130 odd thousand people isn't a isn't a huge number in in the facebook scheme of things it's still 130,000 highly engaged 18 to 25 year olds and the joke that i made with a with a journalist a few weeks ago who challenged me on the scale it was an industry journal um 
Even if we created 9.9 .9 million fake users, our click-through rate would still be relatively higher than that of display media because we get 15 to 30% click-through rate, 98% video completion rate. So again, challenging companies and agencies or companies more specifically, I guess, what do you really want? Do you want to talk to lots of people? Or do you want lots of engagement from less people? Mm -hmm. And surely the answer is the latter. Mm. Uh, presumably with this 130,000, if they see the value, they're engaging, they're going to be talking about it. And that's how it's being promoted. So I assume you've gotten over the, the challenges of growth for now. Um, what I wanted to get into last part was just about the use of artificial intelligence as you approach this, because people.io is a is obviously growing successfully. You've got a, a good idea of how your business model is going to work, and it seems to be anyway an antidote to the current climate. But you you you've used AI as you've rolled out, and I would just love to, you just tell us about how you've gone about implementing artificial intelligence because a lot of people are surely thinking about oh yeah we should have an ai strategy but how do you actually go about you know you just start with what are the basic logistical elements and then the hiring components i mean what, how would you go about that, how have you that? so it, it, it's challenging to say the least because when we first started there was there was a big push from from some of our investors but also wider community that we had to go out and hire a data scientist we're, we're a data company we've got to have a data scientist and my response was why we haven't got any data because of course the data we're creating or, or analyzing comes from people not hoovering up third-party data from across the internet so in fact, the, the foundation of our approach to data science and, and the future of AI was starting by hiring a neuropsychologist. So Sonia, who's part of the PeopleIO team, is, is this absolutely incredible um, person who, is, who understands the way people think and behave and, and perceive themselves. And so what that means is the data that we create is is grounded in an understanding of a person so instead of creating huge volumes of um, reasonably interesting data we're creating large volumes of highly accurate finely tuned data so of course as i've mentioned lots of, of question responses now we've got nearly 80 million question responses in the database now and and how many questions is are, are are feeding the 80 million so there's around six to seven thousand unique questions mm -hmm. um and so each user gets a new questionnaire every day um so we have those 80 million question responses but we also then have all of the observed data so over 50 percent of our users connect their gmail account to the platform importantly no humans are reading their emails it's it's safe we're not sending stuff on their behalf and of course the user owns all of that data so very important to note that uh we also have spotify as a data integration so from a from a data science point of view we have this this semi-supervised machine learning model because effectively you have a human in the loop. You have the human answering the questions, which enables us to validate the observations we're making. And in the world of AI, that is actually one of the biggest challenges. How do you train a model? How do you let the, the, the system analyze this data and then go about validating it? Well, fortunately for us, that is the, the kind of foundational functionality of our app. Uh, and it starts because the person has the control. The challenges we've faced, especially on the hiring side, is finding individuals that have both a, an understanding and ability to, to enact the what 
whilst also understanding the why. And and it's it's very hard to find, at least from, from my experience at least, which is limited, to find someone that has the, the vision mm-hmm. of the craziness mm-hmm. that we're looking for, but can also sit down and go, right, what here's what I'm going to do. And, and that is a really fascinating challenge because we're, we have a policy where we hire people, not roles. It works most of the time, but some of the time it, it kind of bites you on the ankle. Um, and so with this role, even though uh, we've interviewed a number of different people on the data science side, and we have a data science team already, but, but trying to find the head of data science role. It's like, right, we need someone that's a little bit crazy, or in fact, very crazy, um, but at the same time is able to sit down in a room with a group of people and catch the opportunities and the ideas and go about delivering it. Because you won't get to the long term unless you deliver on the short term. And and so you get the data, you've, you've got some people, you're not uh, competencies you're hiring. Uh, how do you go about instructing your machine learning or AI uh, or whichever it is to go about improving so is it about improving the types of questions you're answering is it about the analysis of the data points and and that craziness applied to insights from trying to find correlations between really disparate data sets how do you navigate through that really really uh with a lot of pain and and the reason it's quite painful is because we we end up falling back on these very philosophical questions mm-hmm. so for example because this this bigger vision is a firewall for people um with an idea that you will have this user profile api where a user can effectively connect their, their identity into any third party service via the people io platform um the challenge there is is what defines a person in a digital form. So whilst in the world of advertising, you have 300 or so IAB categories, when we asked one of our data scientists who has his PhD in bioengineering, when we asked him to simplify our data schema into 300 data categories that were, in his view, so broad and so innocuous and so arbitrary it actually took two days to rationalize to him why that needed to be done. And so this the, the trickiest thing for us, in, especially in that space of AI, is first defining what the output structure of the data should be. And at the moment, we're working towards a temporal and spatial representation of a human. So effectively, um, that could manifest itself in a, in a form that benefits an advertiser or brand which is of course our short-term goal because that's how we create the value for the user to create the data but in a longer term through this profile api that can then enable different types of products and services for example uh we've we've built this this hack prototype of a spotify music playlist creator now everyone and his wife has created a playlist creator uh the difference of ours and hopefully the 10x Uh, improvement is that now the playlist doesn't so much recommend music based on people that like rock or electronic music etc now we're able to say okay you because of data from your fitbit have just gone to the gym or you're having an unproductive afternoon because you haven't really sent that many emails or you went out for lunch and had a burger and now you're going for a run So what are people that have similar personalities or emotional states or contexts to you 
but also have an opposing context like someone that has just gone for a run what are they now listening to that would motivate you to go for a run but how do you how do you expose that data in a safe and secure way so the the biggest challenge for us in the ai is less about the technical because a lot of the technology has been done that's the interesting thing we're not trying to solve general ai we're not trying to solve a lot of these big big heavy technical challenges um because people don't care about them people care about the value for them themselves and at the moment at least you don't need that heavy stuff to do that so the the first and the biggest challenge for us with ai is working out where the ai creates value for the user and in its most simple form how does that data from the ai get structured all right before we sign off nick i want to circle back on one question which we didn't answer which is how do you establish trust Mm. Yeah, trust is a massive, massive part of what we're doing. Um, And I'll give you an explanation of how we do it at the moment and then explain why I don't think trust is possible in the future. Um, So the way we establish trust is through transparency. Um, But transparency often is misconstrued as tell everyone everything, um, regardless of the way that you say it. And that creates confusion because people simply don't understand the technology. Um, so for us, those three points that I mentioned earlier with the consent, people en masse don't understand the nuances of legalese privacy policies and, and heavily, heavily language. Exactly. So we've tried to write it in as friendly a way as possible, but also acknowledge that someone simply may not have the time or care enough. So we pull out the three most important factors that the users require in order to establish trust that also don't contradict the, the broader statements in, in the privacy policy. Uh, we also um, see that a person uh, establishes trust after using the app and making their first redemption with their credits. So from the, the user testing we did, we saw that people were willing to, to engage, but the point where they truly trusted us was the point where they could make their first redemption and realize that this was a legit opportunity for them so that that's how we do it in the short term there's a number of other very nuanced approaches to how we do it but the reason i don't think trust is is possible in the long term is because trust requires an individual uh, to comprehend risk and in my view at least trust is the the bridge between an individual's comprehension of the known and ability to determine what is unknown and therefore risk. And trust can then be nurtured through design and understanding. And in fact, the, the Rachel, who worked with the founders of um, Airbnb on, on designing for trust, fascinating, fascinating person to listen to. But when you rent your property on Airbnb, you can broadly comprehend the risk, the worst that's going to happen. Burn your house down, trash the place, steal everything. There's a limitation of the, the risk. Uh, in a future world of AI, though, what is the risk of letting someone process your data? If the smartest person in the world cannot comprehend the potential outputs of a deep learning or neural network, if the smartest person can't even comprehend that, how do you expect a consumer to? And if they cannot, in a realistic form, perceive that, how could they possibly be expected to trust something? And so I think there's a big conversation at the moment about black box, white box algorithms. Um, 
I simply don't think trust in the way that we perceive trust right now will be possible in the future. And, and the final analogy I have that aligns with that is, is the same as privacy. Privacy in 1911 was a, a person's ability to withdraw from society. Uh, an all-encompassing ability. So lock yourself in a house and you're, you're private. Uh, in 1940-something or other, Oxford uh, changed the definition to, to effectively states of privacy, a person's ability to afford themselves a state of privacy. Um, hmm. Basically supposing that you will never have an all-encompassing privacy, but in a space or a zone, you will have the privacy. Um, and I think the same will have to become true for trust. Trust will come down to within a state, you can trust something to occur or not occur and and that future vision with our firewall for people is effectively so long as you connect to the rest of the world through the firewall you will be able to expect a certain level of trust or privacy superlative nick um it's been a lot of fun listening to you um let's say you've got 130,000 users today or what's your uh, let's say you're if you can tell us uh, by 2020 how many users do you think you'll have on board so we're in 2017 now 2018 so we're looking at north of 10 million is our plan we're we're in germany and the uk at the moment we have some some pretty exciting plans for the middle east uh, for australia and for south america uh, the exciting thing for us is it's it's kind of binary if it works it's a billion people. If it doesn't work, well. <laughs> and I, I don't hear United States in there. The US is interesting. I don't think the US is ready for it yet. And the reason I don't think they're ready is is some of the, the, the greatest acquirers and potentially misusers of data make the US a lot of money. Mm. And I don't think it's in the interests of a government or, or a state to, to, well, money speaks. Um, You're somewhat of a disruptor, Nick. So how can somebody, uh, the easiest way for people to get onto people.io and, uh, and, or connect with you? Easiest way to, to get the app is iTunes or, or Android store, download uh, people.io, search for and download. You can go to people.io, the website. Easiest way to get in touch with me. LinkedIn is normally one of the fastest. Search for, for Nicholas Oliver or just drop me an email, nicholas.oliver at people.io. Brilliant. I will put all that in the show notes. Nicholas, thanks for illuminating us and uh, sharing with us your thoughts. Uh, very, You were very transparent in the way you expressed this. And, and hopefully that will lead to great success for your, uh, your initiative. Thanks a lot, Nick. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and my other blog posts on branding and digital on Mindset.com. That's Mindset with a Y, of course, where you can also sign up for my biweekly newsletter at Mindset.com forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, go ahead and click the handy Facebook like button or share it out by your favorite media. In the meantime, come catch me on Twitter at mdial or listen up for the next show. Now enjoy Josh Sachs's Finger Paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray. You mentioned in your lack of self-security Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form As long as you would feel warm Wrapped in canvas, hold me tightly Slowly we would paint a lover 
Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian jiu-jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.